Hello everyone and welcome to Season 1, Episode 29 of Dead to Rights, the podcast. Today we're thrilled to bring you our interview with a very funny writer, Mr. Perry Block, author of Nouveau Old, formerly Cute. For our readers on the run, we're featuring The Size of the Skip by hubby Alec Carrick. This story received an honorable mention in the 2010 Lorian Hemingway short story competition. It first appeared in his collection, Three Scoops is a Blast, from the Scoops series, Carrick Publishing. A beautiful look at how time is neither linear nor circular, but rather a game of hopscotch, with memory being its loving conduit. Coming up on July 22nd, we'll be speaking with young adult adventure steampunk author of the Maddie Hatter series, Jane Barnard. And on July 29th, we'll close the month with an interview with Jen Knox, literary author of After the Gazebo and The Glass City. But before we get to all that, just a minor recap of the week. First of all, yes, yes, yes. The 12 young soccer players and their 25-year-old coach were freed from the cave in Thailand, where they had been trapped for weeks. In a rescue operation lasting many days, on July 10th, the last boy and the coach of the wild boars were finally freed. The Thai Navy SEAL rescue team and international divers had managed the impossible, but not without cost. On July 6th, former Navy SEAL diver Saman Gunan was one of many volunteers who had rushed to help in the rescue. In an attempt to deliver oxygen to the boys, Saman ran out of oxygen himself. He lost consciousness and died at the age of 38. He will be remembered throughout the world as a hero. His death is tragic and our hearts go out to his family and friends, along with our deepest thanks. Because of the courage and skills of people like Saman Gunan, 13 families were reunited with their loved ones. Our thanks also go out to Coach Aki, a young man of only 25 years, and my own sons are aged 33 and 20, so I know how serious and dedicated these young men can be. He cared for the 12 boys and saw them through one of the most traumatic ordeals they will likely ever encounter. We needed a good news story. I jumped out of my chair with joy when I heard the final diver had exited the cave to safety. For my review this week, I want to go off the rails and talk a bit about the Hulu television streaming series, The Handmaid's Tale. Originally a book by renowned Canadian author Margaret Atwood, this dramatization has been fully modernized, with the lead character, Alfred, slash June, being portrayed by the one and only Elizabeth Moss. A few words come to mind regarding this series. Chilling. Relevant. Cautionary. Diabolical. And terrifying. But above all, brilliant. The casting, the acting, the costumes, the writing, sets, choreography, psychology. Every aspect of The Handmaid's Tale is beyond reproach, in my opinion. Some reviewers may say that season two moved a tad too far into the inner reeds of June's past, but these ventures were necessary to tie the past to the present, to offer the viewer an insight into the current nightmare that was hatched. If you haven't yet encountered The Handmaid's Tale, Run, don't walk to Hulu streaming. Please do not give in to the temptation to start with season two. This is one series that needs to be binged from beginning to end. And don't forget to take happy breaks, otherwise you may find yourself consumed with the parallels between our global current situations and the world created by Margaret Atwood. Believe me, that would not be a good thing. Now, stay with me, listeners, as I bring you The Size of the Skip by Alec Carrick from Three Scoops is a Blast, Carrick Publishing.
The Size of the Skip by Alec Carrick. The man, his son, and his daughter had a routine when they went for a bike ride. Taking point position would be the son, about to turn age 12, on a medium-sized bike. In the middle would be the daughter, just short of eight years old, on a small but not too small bike. Bringing up the rear and keeping an eye on the whole convoy, the 50-something aged man was on the biggest bicycle of the three. They would ride in tandem down the street that ran past their cottage and up and down the undulating hills that made their little community such a pretty place in which to live. White pine, spruce, and cedar mainly hid the oak and maple that came to the fore in the fall when the leaves changed color. Multi-hued and variously sided cottages were set well back on sandy soil. There was one biggish hill they liked to pretend was a monster. They called it San Garganza for no particular reason, except it sounded like the kind of place where the souls of dead bikers might have made their heads-over-heels exits. It was fun to pretend they were scared of the place. The potholes on that particular stretch of pavement were a bit of a safety hazard. Most often, the rides were pure enjoyment, with not a lot to upset the pleasure of the experience. There were a few cars and trucks that would drive past, and sometimes annoyance was expressed when it was obvious someone was driving too fast through what was basically a residential community with quite a few kids. All in all, the man knew his children would remember these rides with fondness when they grew up and had families of their own. It was the spring of the year, and the three of them were particularly glad to be out for their first ride. Winter in the city had been medium harsh, with an average amount of snowfall. The father had been working quite hard, and while he had by no means ignored the children, it was easy to underestimate how much they'd grown up. Leaving their wife and mother behind to attend to some womanly matters, and because she needed time to herself every now and then, the outbound ride from the cottage was uneventful. Including the plummet down San Gorganza Hill, the journey took 20 minutes to reach the local playground, with a swing, slides, and other contraptions, such as monkey bars at different heights. They each took their turns doing silly things, including the man, although he did also rest on a bench for a while. After half an hour, they were ready to begin their trip home again. Something about the moment quickly overwhelmed the man. Perhaps it was the perfection. Not purely perfect, but as close to perfect as anything was going to be in this life. Here he was on a beautiful spring day with two of his three children, and they were all feeling young and coltish. With age, the man had come to realize that, at its core, the nature of time is illusory. The body is merely a shell to the mind. Memories are skipping stones, with their immediacy undimmed by the size of the skip. It had been only a hand wave ago when each of the children was a baby and needed a good deal more attention than they truly required now. Last year, the daughter moved up a size in bike, and what had been an awkward exercise in balance and mobilization then was now a thing of ease and grace. That was just one of the changes underway on a day-to-day -day basis in their lives. Time was getting away from him. No doubt about it and he was helpless to do anything but run with the stampede. He thought back to his own father's far-fetched stories about biking adventures. His father claimed to have ridden for hours to escape the big city on the weekends. There'd be visits to relatives at a farm. It was deemed nothing to pedal 50 miles at a go. Measurement in those days was in miles, not these newfangled shorter kilometers. Looking back to his childhood, the man never remembered seeing his father on a bike. It had all been serious transportation by means of a shiny new company-bought car each year. There wasn't the emphasis on healthy exercise that came later with the post-war baby boom generation. 
When his father was in his seventies and far from completely steady on his legs, he'd surprised everyone by purchasing a bicycle for himself. He was supposedly acting on doctor's orders to maintain as much physical good toning as was likely to be achieved. The suspicion was that his father really wanted to recapture some of the joy of youth that came with hopping on a two-wheeler. The three of them saddled up and headed back to the cottage. This time they panted and puffed to ascend San Garganza Hill and felt the exhilaration of mountain climbers when they crested the peak. From there, it was mainly a straight-line hillocky ride for two kilometers. The sun started to pull ahead. The man understood the boy needed some independence. He watched him speed out front. The boy would disappear over the top of one gentle hill to quickly reappear on the upward slope of the next. Each time he was moving further and further away. The man had a flashback to the exhilaration the youth must be feeling. There would be the pleasant breeze in his face and the throbbing stretch of leg muscles. He couldn't have kept up with his son now if he wanted to. Besides, he had to stay with his daughter to make sure she was safe in traffic. Thank goodness he had that excuse. And the sun was in his eyes, he laughed. This was another nugget to be deposited in his memory bank. The results from panning his slowing stream of years needed to be treasured and hoarded. He knew no such thoughts were entering the mind of his son. The boy embodied the moment and the future in an instant. For the boy, there was infinitely more to look forward to. The father was fleetingly envious. They all met back at the cottage. The son was waiting for the father and daughter. The son asked, Dad, do you suppose I can have a little more allowance each week? Yes, you're getting older and you'll need to learn how to handle money better. And can I stay up on school nights later? If your mother agrees, that's okay with me. It might actually help you sleep better. Can I go on your computer? Absolutely not. Use the handout from your brother. Thank you for listening to The Size of the Skip by Alec Carrick. I know it speaks to me of the passage of time and how critical that is. And now I'm delighted to bring you my interview with Perry Block, author of Nouveau Old, Formerly Cute. By way of introducing Perry, I'm going to read to you a um, review of his work by Andy Cohen, comedy writer for Seinfeld, Cheers, and Third Rock from the Sun. Perry has the wit, wisdom, voice, timber, and cadence of a young Dick Cavett. To call Perry a young anything is my gift to Perry. I knew this about Mr. Block 40 years ago when we first met, and his writing confirms it. And now, here's Perry Block. Uh, good morning, Perry, and welcome to Dead to Rights. Hi, Donna. Nice to be with you. Good, good. Thank you for coming. Um, now, I, I was interested in you and in having you on the podcast because, frankly, I like your sense of humor. Um, I, I, I find humor a very difficult genre to work in. It, it doesn't work for me, but I have a great appreciation for it. I, I just, I love a good laugh, and you certainly provide one. So. Oh, okay. Oh boy, I, I really appreciate. I'm going to enjoy this time. I really appreciate that. Yeah. What What initially drew you to working in the humor genre? Well, I, you know, as far back as I remember, I was always interested in funny and comedians, and and uh, you know, I liked to watch the Three Stooges when I was real little, and anything anything that was funny was of most interest to me. Um, and I I always had a good sense of humor, but nobody knew it. <laughs> I was painfully, painfully, painfully shy. Painful. I mean, I had another painfully, and and so I didn't share it at all until I was much older. Yes, um, I think that's a true story for most writers in almost any genre. That the uh, the painfully shy part, not necessarily the you funny think that's part. Right? Yeah. And it's only when we start I, to I mature and come into our own that we I, realize. I, I, didn't, I didn't raise my hand in class unless I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> um, you know, it was embarrassing, you know, in college seminars. Uh, yes, Mr. Block, I need the bathroom, please. 
When I tell people that I was painfully shy as a child and as an adolescent, they frankly, they don't believe me. They really don't believe me. They think I'm making it up. They think I don't know what shy is, but I was... Oh, I, I know what you mean because we have our moments when people don't think we're shy at all, especially when we can let loose with the comedy. Mm-hmm. And then at other times when they see people like us, and I'm assuming you're saying this way, shrinking back, they think, well, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Um, but you can be two, two persons in one, actually, if you have this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think part of it is maturity. Uh, I reached a point in my life, I don't know if this is true for you, where I recognized that if I was ever going to come into my own right, it had to happen soon because life doesn't happen forever. Like, like uh, uh-huh. we don't uh-huh. have this gift in the long term. We only have it in the short term. Oh, oh I agree. In fact, that's, although I don't know how stressed this is in my book, it's kind of in there. I, I mean, I wanted it to be there. Although my book is, is to be funny. It's not a self-help book or anything like that. But I try to kind of maneuver towards the idea that, you know, while we're, um, especially we boomers are, fighting with the idea of being older, I have to realize that the only thing we really have is to, is to just do at a certain point. Yeah. And maybe the things we're always too afraid to do, because that's the only, I am getting heavy-handed here, that's the only immortality we have. And uh, I tried to put that in there without banging people over the heads. Yeah, well, on behalf of writers of a more uh, serious bent, uh, I don't think you were being heavy-handed at all. I think you were being right on the money. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Now, historically, one of the reasons I'm always drawn to humor is because I think it allows us to state truths which to us are obvious, but which to other people in the world may seem controversial. It allows us to state those truths in a safe forum and in a way that people can attach to and and see things from our point of view, you know? Um, I'm talking about... You know, the vaudevillians before the Second World War and um, some of the great political and, and uh, economic satire that's been done over the years, you know. Now, I want to make reference to something that you've got on your website, which is called uh, a letter, an open letter to Mr. Bezos of Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That will be in the McSweeney's next week, by the way, which I'm very happy with, which is kind of a premier comedy site. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Um, I find that that letter kind of follows an irresistible tradition of laughing at the times we're facing. How do you see the role of humor in any times? Well, I I think you're right about that. um, You know, politics is kind of the great leveler because almost everybody follows it to some degree. So as long as you're not, you know, referencing balance of trade payments and so forth, people all have a sense of it, they all have a sense about how they feel uh, with it. I mean, sometimes it's sports and, and entertainment too, but I think politics is really the thing now, especially in the age of Trump. Mm-hmm. So everybody relates to it, everybody has opinions about it, and everybody wants to feel better about it, especially when they see what's happening. So I think the humor enables us to touch a, a chord that we all feel now to some yeah. degree and hopefully make us feel a little better about it. I did a piece recently um, which was about, and you know, I'm going to be a little political here, about Trump blowing up the world. Oh! Uh, <laughs> couldn't happen. It couldn't Larry happen, Perry. <laughs> I think you're just getting a little far out there now. finds Paul Ryan. Mm-hmm. And he says to Paul Ryan, well, Trump's just blown up the world. What do you have to say about that? And Paul Ryan says, very troubling. <laughs> and then he says, well, what do you mean? And he says, most concerning. And he says, now, don't you think we would at least impeach Trump? And Paul Ryan says, well, no, I don't think we should jump to any conclusions at the end of the world. (laughs) And, you know, it's a way, I mean, what's going on there is maddening, and it's a way of laughing at that and making it palatable, even while we, you know, feel that rage. Yeah, yeah. Because rage kills, it really does, you know, but laughter really is, to be very cliched about it, it's the best medicine, and um, we know, we know, uh, our scientific selves know that rage does kill, and to be outraged every day the way that many of us are, it's not healthy. Oh, yeah. It's not healthy. Well, you're, you're, you're in Canada, though. You must be relieved every day, though. Oh, no, Perry, come, come. You're not the first person to say this to me, but if you ask any Canadian, we love the fact that we have our own identity. We're extremely proud of our own identity and our own way of life. 
but we are also realistic. We have one-tenth the population of our closest neighbors. We are so greatly impacted by everything you guys do, say, yeah. think, feel. Your culture is so so intrinsically part of our own that um, when I hear people say I don't have a right to have an opinion because I'm Canadian, you just shake your head. You can't even argue with that kind of oh, thinking oh, because that, it's that so that beyond the reality I know. I think you have a right to have an opinion, every right to have an opinion. Just like I have a right to have an opinion about what goes on in Israel, even though I don't live there, mm -hmm. I have a right right to my opinions about that. Of but, course. But I see that completely um, that it impacts you a lot. I just think maybe it's good to be a step away from it and realize that you have a prime minister with terrific hair. Oh, and, he's uh, a good looking and, one, too. No, Perry, you're old enough that you you might remember his father. You might remember his father, Pierre, right? Do you remember Pierre Trudeau? Oh, yeah, that's him. Oh, no, Justin. It's Justin Trudeau. Well, it's Justin, but his father was Pierre Trudeau. He was our prime minister from about 1968 through to, I want to say, maybe early 70s. And he was uh, he was most known for having dated um, uh, Barbara Streisand and uh, for having flipped the bird to other world leaders and reporters. Um, he he was he was quite a character. He was a very intelligent what, man and a very astute a politician. Wasn't he highly respected though? I mean, uh, uh, you know, an offbeat guy, but highly respected. He was extremely well respected throughout the world, really, Pierre Trudeau. Um, and he was quite well respected in Canada, too. It was one of those things where you either loved him or you hated him, but very few people claimed not to respect him. Right, right. Well, maybe, it, and I guess we're getting off topic, but maybe it's because Canada maybe is a little more governable considering its size, but I always, I've been in Canada many years, but I always had the feeling when I would go there that I was in a place where they're doing it right. Um, I like to think that. that I like to think that, but I'm worried because we're we're exposed to the fake news. We're exposed to the Russian bots. Um, I'll give you an example, Perry. If I post this podcast, that the episode that I'm doing with you online, on every social media site I've got, but I don't boost it. I simply post it everywhere. I could probably count the number of views it'll have on a couple of hands, but if I post one video that is in support of the kids who are marching against guns, all of a sudden, I will have hundreds upon hundreds within minutes of views and hateful comments and all kinds of things. And so we are, we are just as susceptible as you are to the bots who are out there waiting and watching for the keywords to jump all over. Um, they're out there. And they're absolutely, they're not even friends of mine necessarily, but they're watching for keywords so they can go on the attack. And they hit you right back, huh? They hit you right back immediately, and then they invite their swarm of bot friends to come and do the same thing. Jeez. So we're very susceptible to all of that up here, and um, we're also susceptible to people who may not be as politically savvy. And, I mean, people have a right not to spend their lives glued to the political situations. Um, people just want to live, basically. But, of course, we're just as susceptible to people who may not necessarily know what they're getting into with different things. And so we've got some, we've got our eye on the politics up here, too. Let's just put it yeah, that well, way. It's very easy to get drawn into disputes with people uh, that you don't even want to, but someone says something that makes you so mad and you fire back and they yeah. fire back and everything. Wait a minute, I want to be funny here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is my call. This is my calling to be threatening to, a guy you know where because he likes Trump. Yeah, and yeah. It's so seductive to get into that because you get so mad. Sure it is, but, but the, I have a I'm policy that I just don't engage with them because I really truly feel that they're just watching for keywords and going deliberately on the attack, and I won't engage with that. They're not really friends who want to debate or anything like that. If they were, I'd have a little more tolerance. I have some friends who come onto my page and they'll debate, and I know them. I know that they have good hearts. Yeah. I know who they are. They don't have to agree with me on everything in order for me to like and value them, you know? Right. But, but you know, there can be constructive dialogue. Sure, not, sure. They're not going to convince anyone, and they're certainly not going to convince you. And they're legitimate friends who really see my post because they're friends. 
and are right. responding in that in that spirit, um, as opposed to the hundreds and hundreds of bots who suddenly swarm and attack on the slightest uh, thing just because they're watching for keywords, you know? Yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah, mm. Twitter and Facebook and everything sort has changed in the last few years. It really has. And yet we really need the social media. I mean, um, I, I ask a lot of authors that I talk to about how they've used social media to reach out. I know you've got a very good reach. You've... um. You've been able to develop a really good reach on social media, and part of that has been your association, I think, with humor outcasts. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, basically, social media uh, helped me build this career. Um, it, it, it was actually eight years ago. I had worked for a number of years at a job, and human resources, and the job went away, and I was going to get another job, but I had some family commitments and so forth, so I couldn't. I really didn't have the liberty to be out and about, and I just went on Twitter. I didn't even really know anything about Twitter, except I thought it was kind of a silly word, Twitter, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't sound very adult, that everyone's on Twitter now, but yes. I went on to that, and I, and I had read that someone had gotten a TV series through Twitter just by putting up funny lines, and <laughs> so I started doing, I didn't you know, get a TV series, I just started doing that, people started liking it, people said, did you write a blog, and I didn't even know what a blog was, and I started writing a blog. Mm -hmm. because it, 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 it rolled along from the, the suggestions I got. And I had, was not even on Facebook. And I thought, well, Facebook's probably just for people with their best friends. You know, I thought that was like letters from home. Yes. And I went under that, and I saw that that was something more. And I actually found it easier to connect with people on Facebook, ultimately, than with Twitter, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I didn't understand. So I had Twitter, I had a blog, I had Facebook, and I hadn't planned to do any of this. I'd been, I'd, I'd written some... Uh, humor in the past, but I didn't plan to begin doing it again now. Mm -hmm. And then I got associated with Humor Outcasts, which is a site uh, run by a woman named Donna Cavanaugh, who uh, uh, is a publisher, and she publishes indie author authors, mostly humor writers, but plenty that aren't humor, humorous writers as well. And again, I thought, can I really do a book? You know, because it was step by step, and I thought, I never really thought I would do a book, mm -hmm. but she encouraged me, and... Uh, Yeah, it's an experience. It's an experience either way. And uh, for anyone who is not familiar with Donna Cavanaugh, I think you should look her up. Humor Outcast. She's just a wonderful lady, really, isn't she? She's great. And I say she inspired me and encouraged me. I, 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 you know, I, I can't do it. I don't know if you know that song from the producer. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can write, you know, 50 word pieces, but that's not a book. But as we looked at it, that. You know, it's, you know my, my book is made of short chapters, but each one is an experience or a reflection or an event, hopefully mostly humorous. Mm -hmm. And so I took some of the better ones that were in the blog and wrote new material and kind of put it in an order and a sense. I mean, you know, because I had, you know, and they're not all pieces about me and being a boomer. Obviously, there's politics, there's uh, entertainment, there's book parodies, there's all kinds of things. I'm very proud of my... Book, this is in the book, um, Metamorphosis, the musical. Mm -hmm. Toe tapping, many toes tapping the light. <laughs> hundreds of toes, I think. Um, and I put it all in a kind of sequence, I believe, which sort of follows my life and my experiences with my son as he got older, plus the other humor. And kind of made sense of the disparate elements of the blog. Mm -hmm. And I'm very happy with how the book came out. I don't Times bestseller, but I feel like I did add another step in terms of both exploring the character. I call him the character because although the, the person is me, he's not 100% me. His life circumstances are somewhat different than me. So I always refer to me as the character. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it's not just about the character, it's also other humor. And of course, he's a would be writer, so some of the writings are presumably his work. Uh, but I do feel like that was an added step. Writing a blog, an episodic blog, is not the same as writing a book. And the book is called Nouveau Old, Formerly Cute. If you want a good laugh, look it up, people. Um, it really, I think you've brought some joy and some enjoyment to the world with this book, whether it ever hits the New York Times bestselling or not. I think it's got well, the uh, the makings of... Saying, maybe it will now. Maybe I'm 
You never know. You never know. Maybe this podcast will too. You never know. (laughs) Stranger things could happen. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you about, um, in particular, um, well, I think I've already asked you about the role of social media and what you're doing, but you were also invited to um, appear is not really the right word, but participate in a podcast. Uh, Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I've been on a podcast with um, Philly Dees, who is a a podcaster in the um, Ohio area, who's very good. And he does, among other things, podcasts with authors that uh, that Donna works with. Uh, so if you work with Donna, you get a full service uh, experience. I mean, she gets you published, she gets you promotion, she gets you on podcasts. And, and again, I would recommend any you know indie author who's looking around for someone to help publications to look her up. Mm-hmm. But so I would, was on with Billy, and uh, I did one podcast with him, uh, which was a lot of fun. And then I just did another with another writer, uh, another one of Donna's uh, writers, Molly Stevens, who has an interesting boomer-oriented book. Uh, We're not all boomers (laughs) with Donna, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was fun as well. So I really uh, really enjoy, uh, I guess I enjoy talking about my work and a little bit about myself, although Mm -hmm. I I tell really I'm so self-effacing, and if you read my humor, it is. It's very self-deprecating, and and that's one of the things I find charming about it, really. And and that is again. This is this is the duality again. As I said, I was the shyest person around, and I still am in, in my way, and very self-effacing. But yet, sometimes around certain people, they want to tell me to shut up. Sometimes people think I'm like Chris Matthews of, uh, <laughs> of MSNBC. Shut up already! And then they don't believe it when I say, you know. I didn't like how to date until I was 22. Yeah, yeah. I admitted admitted that. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Well, Um, you know, the the whole... The whole description of your foray into social media is just really, I think a lot of us can relate to it. Alec and I, we pretty much mirrored your journey, and that's how I got to know you online, Um, because it was the same. I mean, we just thought all this social media stuff was a little bit silly, I mean, which is indicative of our age, I'm sure. And then one day, because we're both writers, uh, one day we realized, we just woke up. And like we both woke up at the same time, and this has happened to us a few times in our life. I guess we're really closely in tuned. We both woke up one Saturday morning and we said to each other, you know what? It's the only way. It's the only way to go from unknown to somewhat known. It's the only way to reach out and network, you know? And so we just did. We got very involved in Twitter and things like Write Chat and Am Writing and um, all of the various, you know, all of the various uh, Twitter forums that are going on, the chat groups. And we got very involved in Facebook. And uh, like you, we enjoyed Facebook because you can post links, you can post pictures, you can reach out in a more friendly style on it. I find that Facebook is more friendly and more welcoming now than I think that Twitter. I think Twitter and Facebook sort of flipped somewhere along the way. They did because um, Twitter used to be the fun place where you were safe to go out and say any old outrageous thing you wanted and people would disagree or agree. And, but they'd have fun doing it, and you always felt it was in the right spirit. But that's not true anymore. Uh, and Twitter, I, I get the sense that people are looking now to follow celebrities on Twitter. Because at one time, you could you could not only follow them, but they would respond to you, which is less true now. Oh, I but, know. Um, I know. I had a... Uh, I had a... Uh, one time, years ago, I was interacting with Hank Azaria, you know, the actor, and he and I were talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is so cool. That doesn't really happen now. Yeah. But what I think is that a lot of people on Twitter are looking for that. Yeah. Like, they don't follow you unless you're somebody. No, well, I, I had an accidental Twitter. I mean, uh, most people you try to, you, you want to friend with, they'll friend with you if you're not, you know, you're not uh, a Trump follower or something like yeah. that. Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I had a really great off-the-cuff conversation with Nancy Sinatra on, on Twitter way back in the day. And it was quite uncalled for because I wasn't looking to follow celebrities or anything. But um, I'd happened to see her respond to somebody else and something, and I, I agreed with what she was saying. And I just replied back to her, and she replied back to me. And very nice lady, you know. And I, I got quite a kick out of it, I have to say. Yeah. Just the open, just the open conversational style that she employed. I, I, I got a real big kick out of it, you know. Yeah, I, I, it, it was, it was a kick, and I, I used to find 
guess I used to find um, Twitter more fascinating because of that, because of the possibilities than uh, than Facebook. But it has it, it's flipped for me. I think it has changed. Maybe maybe the politics has something to do with it. I think it probably it does. Changed. Yeah. I think it probably does. The bots were really, really, we don't, we hear about Facebook and all the problems that Zuckerberg's facing. I don't think we know the tip of the iceberg with Twitter. Um, I posted on Twitter a little less than, less than a hundred characters, basically just saying that something along the lines of, um, you know, I like the progress women had made. And the bots hit me. I don't know what keyword I had used. I must have used a keyword in the tweet. I can't remember the tweet, but I was oblivious to things like keywords at the time. It wasn't deliberate using a keyword, but there must have been something in there that uh, drew them. They came out in a storm. Uh, Get back in the kitchen, bitch. Um, All kinds of things. All kinds of things. You wouldn't even want to, you know, stuff that just burn your ears, basically. I mean, it was just awful. That's amazing because that sounds so, so mild. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember what the keyword was, but I, I realized later when I went back and looked, because I don't engage people like that. I just block them immediately. Um, yeah. I'm not looking to hurt anyone, and I won't allow people to step on me either, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's, there's just, who are these people? Other than Russians and people who are trying to subvert the country, yeah. who are these people otherwise? What, yeah. What, is the, what, is, what, is, what are they doing in life? I mean, yeah. you know. Well, I figured I figured out after the fact that they had to be hired bots who really do just sit there and watch for keywords. And what they want to do is, well, there's a few things. We've been hearing in the news what their aims are. But in those days, this is going back maybe about four years, in those days their initial aim, I think, was just to cause people like me or other people who might voice a meek little opinion to just shut up. So that our voices would not be heard because it's very unpleasant to go on and say something and be attacked in that way. Yeah, and this could have all been part of the, you know, master plan. You know, this all could have been a part of the uh, Russian or whoever bots to uh, change our country. Sure. Even the early, early step. I, I, I believe anything is possible now. Oh, yeah. And when you study the psychology. I'm sorry, sorry go ahead. When you study the psychology that they were using, what Cambridge Analytica was using was how to change people's opinions en masse by making you believe that opinion is already in place. So they make you believe that this is already a, po- a popular way to think, and so you jump on board. The way, the way not, in the old, the way Nazis came to power done in a modern way. Mm-hmm. Change your thinking, and we're really getting off on a serious tangent now. But I believe that you know they came to Trump years ago because he was perfect for them. Yeah, uh, a naive guy who thought he was the greatest guy in the world. Yeah, who was well known to begin with. Yeah, who was easily manipulable. I, I think this is all going to come out. But, I do too. So I, I could believe that years ago there were bots to set this up. Yeah. Oh, yeah, these things are always under some grand design. They really are. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm really not. But when I look at the workings of this and how it is playing out, I believe that 20 years from now, when this stuff becomes declassified, the stuff we're going to learn, I I hope I'm alive to see this resolved in a positive way. You know, I don't know that I will be, but I I hope I... We are, we are. <laughs> I can edit out as much as you like, it, don't it, worry. It is really important because, you know, I was just thinking we were talking about how there seems to be silly aspects to social media when we, the somewhat older people, started on it. And as I said, the word Twitter to me sounded like a child's toy. Yes. Like, I thought, what is this Twitter? It sounds like, I got you Twitter for Christmas, Bobby. Uh-huh, yeah. So I thought that was silly. And then... And I literally didn't know what the word blog was, but I did know one thing. It's got to be the ugliest new word. We didn't inherit this word from the Middle Ages. We made it up. Yes. <laughs> blog. What are you doing? I'm blogging. Well, I hope you feel better. <laughs> yeah, soon. Oh, and then blog. and then we extended it to vlogging, there. you know, just in case so you... I'm tweeting, I'm blogging. I mean, it sounds like I should be in a hospital. Yeah. Um, Yes. That makes sense. 
Yes. And, and that brings me to what my husband always says. You either can join in or become irrelevant. Those are your choices as a boomer. And uh, I choose to join in and I may still be irrelevant, but it's not going to be for lack of trying to be part of the modern world. And and as boomers, and this is a big part of my book, I don't want to, when I first went on to Twitter, I was looking for fellow boomers who were doing humor. So I wanted to see what, what was there. And at that point, this is not true now, you didn't find much. And when you found boomers tweeting, it was about, you know, embrace your age. The best is yet to come. You're, uh, you know, you're oh, yeah. older. You feel all that corny stuff. And I thought, that sounds right. But I don't feel that way. No, it's hooey. It's really hooey. <laughs> and so the character pretends to, you know, tries to fight the battle and tries to act as young as he can as long as he can, and of course it usually screws up, I mean, some of it is just good comedy, mm-hmm. um, he tries to go out with a woman who is not in his generation, and tries to introduce her to Steely Dan, and she <laughs> wants to see uh, Ariana Grande, and you, yeah. you know, and, and I, I enjoy doing that, I suppose if I had him succeeding, first of all, it wouldn't, see, it wouldn't look right, and it would be sending the wrong message, but yeah. it doesn't mean you don't try. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got you got to explore all the aspects of it. I mean, I can tell you, you know, I'm a big believer in just keep moving forward. But I can tell you that there is days we were watching something on TV the other day and um, the bad guy, the bad character had become, you know, how they'll make the image suddenly monstrous of this person. So this monstrous guy was injured but he was still alive and he was coming back to get revenge and he was creeping over the precipice and all you could see was just his eyes and his whole face was kind of this molten gnash of ugliness and I turned to the kids and I said that's mom getting out of bed in the morning (laughs) that's mom getting out of bed in the morning I know, but they got a good laugh, and you got to laugh at your aches and pains, you know. You just got to laugh. Did you say that, or did your kids say that? No, I said it. <laughs> they wouldn't say something like that to their dear mom. I would send them to bed with no supper. Exactly. That's right. about me. Something I think about in the movies, too, I think this is a boomer thing. Let me know what you think, Donna. We, you know, we're the youth culture, so we were socially, generally very liberal and open-minded to find it well especially I always say we're a cross between the 50s and 60s so we're socially liberal but uh, I don't know societally um, conservative is that Maybe, maybe. I know that we have, uh, we've had problems with these things over the years, especially when the kids were younger. They're older now, thank God. But, you know, we put on what should be a nice, innocuous family show, something that we're all going to enjoy watching together. And the opening scene would be a graphic sex scene between two two illicit people who are married to other people and and uh i'd turn to my young daughter at the time who would be covering her eyes with embarrassment and i'd say well thank god they got that over with you know yeah. i yeah, mean I know. now Some we can people, watch the I'm show my, draw jobbing, my kids will skip right over that's not interesting that's not interesting no, oh my god if they had had this one when i was 18 i would have never left the house <laughs> yeah i've seen that and yeah Mm-hmm. You know, we're the rebels of the 60s, but we're still sire in the 50s. 
The bigger one for me, though, is the uh, graphic violence. In particular, yeah, when violence and sex are intertwined, I really don't like that because when you intertwine anything with sex, I think you get into the into the mass psyche because our psyches are very sexual. And uh, I think that when you intertwine violence with sex, I think that's where you do some real psychological damage to viewers. Um, I don't like that at all. And the other one that I have a problem with is the gratuitous language. And gratuitous is an important word for me as a writer. Yeah, me too. Me too. Because you can put sex, you can put violence, you can put language if it's called for in the section of the plot that you're working on. It doesn't offend me, funnily enough. I'm a middle-aged little old lady. It should offend me, but it doesn't. I, I gotcha. But when it is clearly just there for shock value or when it's passing for humor, oh, please, you know, yeah, tell me yeah, a joke. Right. Don't just curse at me and expect me to find it funny because to me right. that's insulting. I will certainly use the F-bomb in my work when I think it's appropriate because yeah. sometimes the joke is better with what the then what the hell? Sometimes yeah. it just works better. Yeah. And sometimes you need to be graphic. But um, I hate it. Like I said, I hate it in movies where it uh, doesn't belong. I do not want to see gratuitous sex scenes in a movie that otherwise stands on its own and doesn't need it. Mm -hmm. um, once in a great while, and it's probably depressingly in a great while, I might look at one of those movies that features somebody like Stormy Daniels because mm -hmm. I'm in the mood for that. But otherwise, I don't want to see that. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't want to see that in a regular movie. Yeah. And I, again, maybe that's part of, you know, being a boomer. I guess maybe, you know, younger people, millennials, don't even notice that because they just... Think I think it's part of, of being a parent, too, because it's just embarrassing to be sitting in a room with your children thinking you're watching Family Fair and... Yeah. You know, you glance over at your kids and they've got their eyes covered or their ears covered and you're like, what are we doing to you poor children? Like, it's yeah. just embarrassing. And uh, also, I think it's had an impact on the culture. I think, um, I don't want to name any shows because I am not into trashing anybody's art. But there are movies, and I'm sure you'll know what I'm talking about, that really are just about how debauched can we get. And it passes yeah. for humor. And I consider that to be the glorification of stupidity, the dumbing right. down of our generation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's led to a lot of the problems we now have, quite frankly, because we glorify stupidity. Oh, yeah. uh, yes. Yeah. And, and, and that's right. And we, and this isn't even the, the sexuality and the violence and so forth. And I don't watch reality shows and I don't watch... Um, American Idol and things like that, so they may, they may be okay, but it's funny, we're glor we glorify a dumb culture, which mm -hmm. leads us to Trump's, and in the meantime, the culture becomes more competitive, like everybody's kid that you meet, well, yes, I graduated, summer comes summer, and I was on a new, I, I, uh -huh. newsletter, I was and I take it into graduate school. Oh, I know. I wouldn't be young again for anything. An America of achievement, floating in the middle of a dumbed-down America. Yeah. And it seems like we have a very schizophrenic culture now, yeah. Um, which I don't understand because you have Trump as president, but people people of high achievement struggling to get anywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And everybody's got to have three or four degrees now. I mean, I know in Toronto, our universities are filled with kids from all over the world, and many of them are working on their second or their third degrees. And it's just ridiculous. It's like professional students, you know. Um, yeah, and living in the basement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I mean, our kids are hardworking well, and they're smart. But I can live in the basement. I want them here with me, even though they're so <laughs> successful. <laughs> live in the basement. It's okay. <laughs> failure, failure to launch. I remember when that movie came out, Failure to Launch. That was a, <laughs> a good premise. Um, well, were all the parents rooting for that to happen? I didn't see that, but I know what it is. Yes, fail to launch, son. Fail Get a nice job forever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, to me, I mean, when something is supposed to be funny, it should hit the funny bone. And uh, that's what I really appreciate as a reader or a watcher of humor, you know, just hit the funny bone. Hit me with that unexpected line that I didn't think of it. But I think to myself, I wish I'd thought of that, you know? Yeah, yeah cause, I, I know that feeling. Yeah, because it seems so obvious when you hear it. Yeah. It's perfect. And then later on in life, you probably convince yourself you did hear them and 
write and you get sued. But that sometimes <laughs> does happen that you write a line. And I mean, I think this is so good. I probably didn't think of this. Probably remembering it from somewhere. Yeah. Thank God for Google, because we can go in and we can Google. I feel badly for the, the musicians. Our son is uh, studying music at York, and uh, he's a composer, he's a performer, he's really very, very good. But when he's composing, he'll often say to himself, you know, I just don't know, have I heard this somewhere? And it's really hard. Like, I mean, you can stick it into Spotify, but there's no guarantees that you're going to find it if it really is something you've heard before. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I've Googled lines that I've written, and, you know, a line and a joke might not come up. But, uh, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes you just have that feeling. Like, you know, it's interesting. We can find so many things, but we can't find everything. We yeah. And then you see the butterfly effect where something where you know you thought of, and then 10 years later you see it in popular culture. And that just kills us. There's a movie coming out now Has called... That Has that happened again? Yes. There's a movie coming out now called The Beaster Bunny. Now, when yeah. our second son was about four he was in junior kindergarten and the teacher had had all the children um color pictures of the easter bunny at easter time so my husband and i were going into the school because the daycare was also in the school so in the evening we're going into the daycare to get him and we're passing his kindergarten class and we see all these easter bunnies along the wall and i said that one is ted's and it had the jagged teeth and it had the the downward eyebrows and the angry, fierce expression. And we said, we know that one's Ted's. When we pick him up, let's ask him which one is his. Sure enough, that was the one. And ever since then, we have done, uh, up until a couple of years ago, we did an annual event called the Beaster Bunny online, where we would have Alec, myself, the kids, we would all draw outrageous pictures of the Easter Bunny try to make them as unique as possible, and then we'd go online and have people vote on them. The best Beaster Bunny from the Carricks. Okay, so you really had it out there. We really had it out there. And now all of a sudden, and actually Alec liked it so much, he wrote a story called The Beaster Bunny and posted it on his blog. Um, and now suddenly we see this movie, and it's probably just quite a coincidence, but then in the back of your mind you're wondering, is that the butterfly effect? Like, huh. Yeah. You just don't know. I'm going to have to sue someone. <laughs> I'm yeah, kidding. You know, I'm kidding. Get that Michael Avenatti. Exactly. I, oh, what's his he number? So demand. I can't say I'd want to have dinner with him or like have him as a neighbor. But no. Yeah, exactly. He's perfect for this, but you really don't want him living close to you because if he decides he doesn't like the way your tree is leaning, you're in yeah. deep oh, dog he, he, he must have been so hated by just about everybody all through his life, but we <laughs> couldn't have a better attorney to go after Trump. Uh, this is, this is a, it. He got to pat Stormy Daniels on the back. Uh, the back, just pat her on the back. Yes, <laughs> yes. For, for hiring that guy. Um, oh, absolutely. Pre- pretty much I see him more than members of my family now. It's like... Uh, <laughs> He is the guy, absolutely. I love watching him. He never shuts up, though. It's so hard to get him off because uh, he just no, never stops. I haven't stops. seen him with Chris, Ma- Chris Matthews yet. I'd like to see those two together. <laughs> That'd be a real battle, eh? A okay, real battle of the Chris verbiage. Matthews, the Philly Flash, and there's Connor Michael everybody's favorite obnoxious attorney. Oh, uh, yeah, and all you yeah. need is a ring and a pair of gloves. And <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I don't, know. I don't know about your experience. I have not had that. No, no. Well, I, I, I'm not a litigious soul, really, so I think the world is safe from my coming after them with, with Avenatti, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, look into it. If he's ever free, look into it. Yeah, yeah. It might be fun. You never know. It might be like one of those, yeah. uh, one of the seven sacraments, something you should do before you die. Hire <laughs> Avenatti and sue someone. <laughs> I just about know what the seven sacraments are, but I, I did get it. Um, <laughs> your advice be to anybody new coming into the humor genre? I know you've already given a couple of tips, but what would your primary advice be? Well, I would say to me, if you're trying to, to write 
thing I would say is don't be like me. Don't think about it for years and fantasize about how funny it would be. And if you, if you just sit down, just push yourself to sit down and do it. Um, because the internet does provide tremendous opportunities. I started, when I started doing it, it was when you had to type on a typewriter and mm-hmm. send your uh, uh, piece to some to different newspapers and send a self-address and all of that. Mm-hmm. And boy, that was cumbersome. I mean, that's kind of why I didn't keep doing it because I used to do draft after draft of things and yeah. so forth. And, and people today don't understand what that means. Yeah. But now we do have the internet. Now you can write something and put it right out there, which which really changed the equation. Yeah, um, and then you can edit so it based on what you see or what feedback you get. I mean, it's amazing. You can immediately send something out and get feedback and, and, and meet people. Yeah. You know, who will look at it, you know, you can do that fairly quickly on the internet. So don't sit, there's no reason now to sit around, never was, but especially now, don't sit around. Yeah. Try it, expect the first things you write to be terrible. Even if you're the funniest guy in your crowd, it's different to write it and to speak it. You will certainly overwrite it. You'll have too many words. It'll be too long. I still see that in my work as well as many other human writers who are funny, but they kill it with too many. I, I can look at a piece and see if the first paragraph is five sentences, they've blown it already. Yes, yes. Or as my funny. husband always says, that's really funny once you explain it. <laughs> it really it, it, tighter, tighter, always tighter. Yeah. Every now and then it gets too tight, but it, it, always tighter. If you have a friend, if you have a comedy buddy or a humor buddy, to look at it with you, that's great. I used to serve that function for a friend of mine who was who is a comedy writer or did earlier in his career. You know what was the line funnier this way or this way? Should this line come out? I mean you go through it piece by piece like that. Yeah. And just keep doing it and doing it. And for, for one thing you're gonna know you may find out that you prefer just being the funny guy in the crowd and you don't want to spend your time writing it. Mm-hmm. Or you may find out that you do like it and you want to keep doing it. And in the, if that's the case, keep doing it. You can establish with a blog your own platform and, and see how it goes. Yeah. And the yeah. other thing I would add is, and this is, try, I think try to develop an identity because when I started and I was writing primarily about a character and other things, a couple of people advised me drop the um, aging boomer thing because that limits you, and just be Perry Block humor writer. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that, and I said, no, that's I have to have an identity. Mm-hmm. Perry Block humor writer could be any, and this, these were writers who advised me. Yeah. That. Yeah. And my view was, no, I have to have an identity. Now, somebody might say, well, you call yourself this. People don't know if you write about other stuff. But I feel I feel you need an identity. I, you I need to you be need who to you are, who for are. sure. You're not just a, a, a capeless writer. There yeah. may be people who disagree with that. No, But you know what, Perry? I mean, it's rare to talk to somebody who has the courage to be who they are. And what you're saying about hiding... From ageism, really, is what they're advising you to do. They're advising you to hide from ageism uh, by taking out the, you know, the aging boomer aspect. But it's the same thing that professionals tell women. I should be, I should be D. Carrick. I should not be Donna Carrick. And I have refused because I am Donna Carrick. And I'll, I'll be damned if the only way I can sell a book is by pretending to be a man. It's not going to happen. That's ridiculous. Do they still say that? They still do. They still do. And in fact, I have many very dear, very dear friends who write under their initials for exactly that reason, because they were advised by agents or publishers or whomever that the only way to really sell in their genres, and I write in the crime genre, so many of my friends are in the crime genre, um, and the only way not to be seen as a cozy writer or an Agatha Christie is to pretend that you're a man. And I won't do it. If I don't sell a book, I won't do it. I am I, Donna I, Carrick. I, I, I've heard that in the past, and I could see how maybe 30 years ago that would be applicable. You still have your J.K. Well, you see why so many women are really mad. And, and I don't get it, because <laughs> all that does to me is mystify the image of who's writing, and you want to know who's writing. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I think I want to know a little something about the person who's writing, yeah. and their gender is part of that. So. Yeah. And I, I understand it because when you look at many of the when you look at many of the top choices on critics lists, like you know the big newspapers will come up with their annual list of top books, 
I was outraged this year. A lot of my favorite writers, good friends, people I know, uh, both through going to conventions and through social media and through professional networking, they made the list. I think there might have been... I, I, I don't think there was even one female writer this year on one of the big lists that we all look at here in Toronto. No, there might have been one woman, but if there was one woman out of the ten, I'd be surprised. And I remember, because I talked with Linwood Barkley about this, who is one of my favorite writers. I, I really enjoy his work, and he's he's a great he's a great person, and he's a great writer. Um, and he had made the list, and I was so pleased for him. But when I looked over the list, I, could, I didn't want to be sour grapes to him. I hate doing that. But I had to say, you know, I'm thrilled that you're on the list. You deserve to be on the list. But where are the women? And he said, yeah, I know, Donna. I noticed the same thing. So there were actually no women. There were women no women. The there were no women. There were no women. It was, it was horrible. Of a top ten. And, you know, at least three of the writers who were on the list absolutely deserved to be on there. I am not being sour grapes. I would not have displaced those three. And Linwood's definitely one of them. He deserved to be there. I've read every book he's written. And I, I've enjoyed every book he's written. Um... But that's three spots, and the rest could have been questionable. They could have been, there could have been female writers that I've read that I would have wanted to see on that list. Do you think that that's unique to the crime, uh, like mystery genre, or do you think it's still universal? I think that when uh, people look to crime, they think of female writers as cozy writers, and I am not a cozy mm -hmm. writer. I write literary thrillers. Um, I have a humanitarian aspect to them generally, but they are thrillers. Um, and I know many women who write exceptional crime thrillers. And a lot of the women that I see online, they still use initials for that reason. Hmm. Yeah. I, um, real briefly, I had, had uh, a while back been friendly with a woman writer who was using initials, and she had a particularly beautiful first name, which I won't say because I might be identifying her to somebody. Yeah, yeah, and we don't and I, do I that. I her, I said, you have a beautiful first name, you know, very unusual. Why aren't you using that? And she sent me the same thing about you have to use initials. And then I noticed several years later, I wasn't in, like, in touch with her. I looked on and saw she's using her pretty first name now. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine that that would hurt her. Um, uh, she might have already built her. I mean, it, it, it's a whole image and an identity. And um, I, I want to know who I'm reading. I mean, yeah. I want to know that humor or, or in anything else. Yeah, um, she might she might have already built her readership too, and felt like she could now expose herself as a woman. <laughs> and I don't mean in the Stormy Daniels sense. <laughs> no, 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 we don't mean that. For example, Stormy. What if she went? What if she called herself S J? Um, <laughs> like yeah, that would be. It would. It would definitely detract from the appeal, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess there's sexism everywhere. That often, certainly, guys don't even see it. Sure, there is. There's sexism and there is ageism. And one female writer that I know uses her initials be not because she's a woman, but because she said she was given an old-fashioned name. She loves her name. Her grandmother named her. But it's an old-fashioned name, and she's afraid it would mark her as being too old to be palatable to yeah. to readers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I said, we baby boomers, we didn't grow up knowing Ashleys and Britneys, and uh, uh, we knew Margarets. And yeah, just you know those kind of names. Margaret Lawrence, fine. Margaret they Atwood, Margaret. Uh, absolutely, but they identify you. They identify your era. Yeah, yeah. Well, Perry, it's so been I a real. Named Ashley, I know she's too young for me to date. <laughs> She's too young for me, too. <laughs> I'm way too young for me. <laughs> Anyways, Perry, it's been a real delight having you on. This this podcast oh, needed a good dose of humor, you. and uh, I appreciate your giving the time to come on Dead to Rights. Oh, it was fun. Yeah, it I, really was. I enjoyed, I've listened to some of the, your podcasts. I enjoyed the story that your husband wrote in the first podcast about time. Oh, I he's going like to... Hit some of, in a way, hit some of these issues as well. Yeah, he's um, gonna he's gonna enjoy hearing that. Thank you, Perry. I'll tell him that. Oh, I'll pass that okay. on. Yeah, and talking about the stars that we remember in their prime, and you know, and then suddenly we hear they're not around. Uh, uh, it, it ties into a lot of my thoughts. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, he's a special. Subtle, he's a very again, special subtly, guy. It's in the book, but I hope subtly, subtly, because I just want people to laugh. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. We all have a serious side to us, but at the end of the day, as a humor writer, I just know it's got to be gratifying to you when you get a laugh. And I can honestly tell you that your work has made me laugh, so thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Donna. I sure appreciate it. I want to thank Perry Block, author of Nouveau Old, Formerly Cute, for joining us today on the pod. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick or at my website, donnacarrick.com. You, of course, can find my husband, Alec Carrick, at his Twitter handle, at Alex underscore Carrick, or at his website, alexcarrick.com. Join us next week when we're going to rub shoulders with Jane Barnard, the young adult adventure author of the Maddie Hatter series. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, who also brought us the original story scoring music for this podcast episode. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. A dusty road, a man alone His vital signs go on hold And I don't know what you've been told But the years have turned my eyes gold And I told you what you told me We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it rock.